I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversation. So this is a tough one. I just finished speaking with former Congressman Jason Altmaier. He's written a new book that I really hope you'll read. It captures exactly what most of us hope for, but also seems like a ridiculous long shot at the moment, that somehow our divided country will come together around policy and politics. Congressman Altmaier's new book is Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do About It. Some background. From 2007 to 13, Altmaier represented Pennsylvania's 4th District. That's in the south-central part of the state. However, he lost his seat when it got redistricted for the 2012 vote. While in Congress, Altmaier practiced what he preached. At one point, the National Journal calculated his voting record to be at the exact midpoint of the House, the dead center, giving him the most centrist voting record in Congress. Altmaier argues that's part of what did him in, but it's also our way out of this mess. As I said, it's a tough one. In a world of repeal and replace and delayed Puerto Rico hurricane relief and NFL national anthem divide and travel bans and tax cut debate and false both sides parallelism and rampant whataboutism and presidential popular votes that don't align with electoral vote results, I could keep going. There doesn't seem to be an immediate path for the center to rise. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be really clear about what got us into this mess and what it might take to get us out. That's what former Congressman Altmaier has done with his book, and as you'll hear, that's what he does in his conversation with me. Before we begin, though, I want to repeat an ask that I've been making on these podcasts, from me to you. I hope you like these conversations. I really hope you like these conversations. And if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. As always, though, if you don't like the conversations, well, please just forget I ever mentioned it. That's it. Here's my conversation with former Congressman Jason Altmaier. Congressman Altmaier, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. So you have written an optimistic, hopeful book is how I would characterize it. I mean, you outline some, uh, you know, real issues and concerns and, and problems. But in the end, you know, you're uh, an optimistic person and, and you're outlining uh, a path forward, a, a hopeful path forward, um, you know, by, by, you know, great coincidence. I, too, am an optimist by nature. Um, and so I want to believe your thesis, um, and but let, let's talk about that, and whether, as many might argue, um, you know, are you and I perhaps both, uh, you know, too naive? And my, my main question is, I read the thoughtful book and, and thought about this conversation, um, compromise and nonpartisanship and working together, you know, we all say we want that, but when most Americans, and certainly it seems most politicians, start discussing actual issues, healthcare, immigration, tax reform, LGBTQT rights, et cetera, I mean, was, you know, just to name a few of them, it, we don't see much action towards compromise. We see strident desire to secure our point of view. And, and, and so my question is, is your vision great in theory, and I want to believe it. God knows I want to believe it. Um, but perhaps, you know, is it potentially out of date in practice? Well, I talk in the book about all of the ways that partisans think in a biased way. And one of the questions I get asked most often when I think about and talk about these topics 
is why is there so much partisanship in Washington? And the answer is because we elect partisans. The system is designed to elect and protect partisans. So you're correct. And when we have a public debate, the people that you see on TV, the people who participate in campaigns and elections and who are vocal about their opinion, and certainly the people holding elective office, by and large, they are partisans. And by and large, they are on the extreme. And as I talk about in the book, they're not representative of a majority of America. I know there's a debate in the political science community, which I also get into, about whether or not the country as a whole is polarized politically or just our elected officials are polarized because of systemic problems that lead to partisanship and polarization. And I think that's where I, I would disagree a little bit about the, the folks who think the country as a whole is polarized, which seems to be the rhetoric that you hear today. Uh, most people, you're correct, they have political opinions just because you're registered Democrat or Republican and usually vote that way doesn't mean you support unyielding partisanship. And just because you have an opinion, maybe even a strong opinion on some hot button issues or some political causes that are important to you, does not mean that you don't want Congress to work together, to compromise and to get things done. And the problem is we're not electing people to the Congress and to public office who are willing to work together. We're electing people who are very extreme in their views. They are representative of the people who show up to vote, especially in primaries, but they are not representative of the American people as a whole. And I think that's what the debate is all about. Yeah, the, the, the primary process is certainly one of the main concerns, and you outline it very well in, in the book, and, and it's certainly something that uh, – you know that that we've we've heard about it, and many of us worry about. But so so let, let's focusing in on on we want uh, our our elected officials to work together. Um, do we do it? Do I? What does that mean to work together? So so you know, take healthcare. You know, one of the the, the most recent examples. Um, there was certainly no real process. There's a little bit, uh, I guess, with uh, Patty Murray and uh, Senator Alexander, some some attempts, um, you know, that, that got sidelined by the most recent Graham Cassidy attempt. But, but the, you know, the most, uh, you know, one-sixth of the economy core central to, you know, our rights as human beings and our, our goals of, of life and, and good health and being able to raise our families and care for our families um did there there was there was very little evidence of working towards a center uh, i would argue and what would it mean to work towards a center on that i mean is that what people want or do we want the other side to come to our point of view what you see when you look at the studies that have been done in the way people think about that question people who are more politically active generally gravitate towards the extremes. Their answer to that question is they want their side to win. Their definition of compromise is you accept my point of view and we've compromised. But if you pull a more holistic view of the American people, especially folks who are turned off by politics and who don't participate in the political process, their view of political compromise is the other side should get as much or maybe more in a compromise. And again, when you have a primary system that incentivizes the extremes, 
then you're going to have people elected in Congress who don't view compromise in that same sense. So the fact of, of being a centrist in Congress for three terms, I talk about my experience. And what that entails is working with Republicans as, as a, somebody who was a Democrat in Congress, working with Republicans is frowned upon by a lot of people in the district. You're actually punished for being a compromiser. And when you look at the way the debates play out, the folks who draw the most negative attention are the people who, in a political environment, strive to accommodate other points of view and strive to get things done. And that's what we have to change in Congress and in Washington by electing more people who are centrist, more people who are willing to work together, and most importantly, moving away from a political system that punishes people who seek compromise. How, how, and I want to ask you about that, and particularly I want to ask you about how do you activate that middle and how do you activate centrist people and voters? Because I, I hear your thesis, and I, I agree with the thesis that the, the system is kind of hijacked by the extremes on – you know, it would certain. You know, I guess one could say on on either side, but you know, we've seen um, certainly with Tea Party, and now we see what's going on in the Republican Party. I mean, there is there is a civil war going on within within the Republican Party, and, and we'll talk about that as well. So, I, I want to ask you about that core part of your thesis, which is activating the the center so that people who do want to quote work together can. But but going back to this, you know, just healthcare is, is the most recent and. Uh, most obvious example, I guess, we'll be coming up into uh, tax cuts and tax reform. So when you and I talk again in a month or two, we we can make that the example. But was there a center? I mean, if you were still in office, uh, was there a center to be worked on on the health care debate? I mean, the, the, the every bill that went forward was put forward by um, Republicans who were seeking to, you know, who by the CBO count were looking to reduce, you know, the, the results would have reduced health care for whatever, 15 to 32 million, depending on the bill. Was there a place in the center where somebody like you could have worked to find compromise? There's certainly not a majority of votes where you could actually pass legislation in the current Congress. And even when I was there a few years ago, there are people who are representative of a moderate point of view. Now, I do think you pointed out the Republican Party is fracturing and moving far to the right. And the, the distance between the people in the Tea Party movement and, and the Freedom Caucus and the rest of the mainstream Republicans has made people look moderate in comparison that four or five years ago would not have been considered moderates in the Republican conference. But that's just a, an issue that have, they have to resolve on their side. But in order to pass legislation, whether it be in committee or certainly on the floor of the House or the Senate, you need a majority. And the answer to your question is there are certainly not a majority of moderate centrists on either party who are willing to work together and get things done. And again, what you find is when folks like that raise their hand and say, I'm here, I want to talk to the other side, I want to work together, you're actually punished for that in partisan primaries. So there's a very strong disincentive among people in the Congress to work together in a very public way. So on that exact point, and I'm, I'm you know, curious how worried you are about that. I mean, I'm certainly very worried about it. I think you are as well. Um, you know, on the 
I mean, we talk about it on, on with Republicans and, and Democrats. On the Republican side, uh, it, there certainly seems to be, I mean, it's been declared a civil war going on. I mean, we saw it uh, in Roy Moore's victory. Um, we saw it in Trump's before that, but certainly in uh, with Roy Moore uh, in, in Alabama and winning the primary uh, runoff in, in, for the Senate race there. I mean, Steve Bannon and his team are actively trying to unseat Republicans. They've gone after the, you know, the, the quote, establishment, McConnell and, and Ryan, harder than anyone. Um, if if the if one of the two parties is in an internal civil war, one how how much does that hurt the ability to create a center, or is there some opportunity to create a centrist, you know, cross Democrat, cross Republican opportunity? I mean, wh- where is the center? So 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 one, how worried are you about what's going on within the Republican Party, and is that a direct threat? to centrist capabilities in this country, and two, how do you view what's going on in the Democratic Party as well, and is there any chance to bring those two together? I think that your last point is the key issue. The Republicans in Congress are certainly having the war that you're talking about, where conservatives on the far right are going to primary folks in the center, or at least more mainstream Republicans. The The difference between what you have in Congress today on the Republican and the Democratic side is you do have those two factions that exist on the Republican side. By and large, you don't have that on the Democratic side. That's not because the Democratic Party in the country is unified. That's because the Democratic Party purged the moderates and the centrists from the Congress. They had exactly the same kind of internal power struggle that we're talking about on the Republican side, although maybe not to that extreme. But after the class of 2006, of which I was a member, brought Speaker Pelosi to power, you had two terms of Democratic rule. They did some pretty progressive things. And then you had the same type of dispute the Republicans are having on the Democratic side. And the Democrats were successful in purging from their ranks almost every moderate and centrist who was elected in the class of 2006 and 2008. So the Democratic voice in Congress sounds particularly unified today because there aren't any centrists in the room. But the Democrats, from a national perspective, certainly in thinking about their strategic move going forward and the losses that have occurred in the past several election cycles and thinking about the future of the party are having exactly the same kind of debate that the Republicans are having. It's not playing out in Congress because there aren't that many centrist Democrats left in the Congress. So I think that's the difference between where the two parties are today. Interesting. So, so you would argue that the Democratic Party has already done this, and, and would you argue then that the Democratic Party has moved more to the left and that the centrists, and, and you certainly were were one of them, and, and we'll talk about that, and we'll certainly talk about it in, in regards to gerrymandering and what happened to your district uh, in uh, you know in, in your last race, but but is that is that how you would characterize the Democratic Party that uh, it's it's moved to the left so far, but it's in, and it's unified in a, in a more liberal uh, left point of view. I, I I would say that point of view existed before the Democrats took control after the 2006 election, and the same leadership that espoused and continues to espouse those views is still the leadership in the Democratic Party. The difference is the dozens of centrist and moderate members that were there for two or three terms and gave Democrats a two-term majority in the House, they're gone. 
So the liberal voices, the, the voices that you see leading the Democratic Party in the Congress, they haven't changed. What's changed is there's no offsetting moderate or conservative voice or very few of them left in the Congress. So that's why it appears that the Republicans are the party that's having all of this debate and struggle and angst. And they are in the congressional level. But at the national level, the Democrats have to have the same discussion because they have not been successful in national or congressional elections. And they're going to have to come to terms with what's the best future for the party. Is it to be a unified minority who can't win national elections and can't win power in Congress? Or do they have to return to accommodating other points of view and, and incorporating centrists and moderates into their policy proposals as a way of winning the majority? How concerned are you about the popular vote versus electoral vote question? I mean, when, when you talk about not being able to win national office, I mean, first of all, you're right. Uh, Democrats didn't win. Hillary Clinton lost and, and Donald Trump won. Um, but, of course, uh, on a popular vote basis, uh, that went Democratic. It did not go Democratic on the electoral vote. Um, I saw a, st- a statistic. I forget where I saw it. I really got to look this up to, to, to make, you know, because it was it just, you know, blew my mind. I, I think in, in some near future amount of time, 5, 10, 15 years, some 70 percent of Americans will be living in 30 percent of the electoral votes. There's some statistic like that where where we are clearly moving, meaning, you know, the continuation of the urbanization of, of America. Um, and we're, we're moving even more aggressively, it seems, into a split country geographically. So um, how concerned are you about that? And when you talk about, you know, Democrats not being able to win nationally, um, no doubt that's true. That was proven, you know, that that's what occurred. Um, but does that give you concern about popular vote versus electoral vote? And that, and that is a good point. It is true that in the presidential race, the Democrats got more votes than the Republicans. So what I just said, that, that is definitely something to think about. It's an understatement to say that the Democrats have been disappointed a couple of times over the past couple of decades in the electoral outcome. And you had Bush versus Gore, which was a very, very close election. And then you had the 2016 election. So, of course, on the Democratic side, they would view that to be unfair. In the history of America, the, you know, it's played out the other side has, has lost too. But what you just described with the population trends and, and, and the electoral votes being in the larger states, that is exactly why the system was designed the way it is. So as someone who, who looks at the magnificent way that our founding fathers put together the Constitution, where the House has two terms. They're elected representatives of their districts. The districts are all the same size. The Senate, you get six-year terms, theoretically more thoughtful and deliberate. They represent entire states rather than districts. And it really does have a balance between populism and immediacy in the House and then a more thoughtful approach that gives the smaller states some power in the process. And that, of course, if you go back to the Constitution and the debate that occurred in Philadelphia in 1787, that is exactly what was being discussed. How do we ensure that the smaller states continue to have power? 
So at the congressional level, they've been able to do that through this balance between the way the House and the Senate operates. The senator from Delaware and Montana and North Dakota has the same power as a senator from California and Florida and Texas. And that's a good thing, especially given the balance that occurs in the House where all members are equal across 435 members. But at the presidential election, um, at that level, yes, that's a debate the country has to have is should those 538 electoral votes be distributed in a way that gives those smaller states that I mentioned equal or more power um, or certainly the power to swing elections in a very close election in a way that the the winner of the popular vote, in this case by three million pe- people, is not elected president. You know, I'm one person, but in my view, I think the system is working exactly the way it was designed to work. And if you go away from the electoral vote system at the presidential level and move only to the popular vote, you'll never see a candidate set foot in the Dakotas or or in Delaware or Connecticut or any of these smaller states because they'll have near irrelevance at the electoral level. So I really believe that the way to ensure we have a national election and all voices are heard is through the electoral vote process. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you are going to have times where it, it, it goes against the, the party that won the majority of the popular vote. But I do think that's the way the founding fathers had designed the system with those concerns of the smaller states in mind. I'm curious your your take on President Trump's role in in this divide and and the you know the challenge of coming back together. Uh, there's a Quinnipiac poll that uh, just came out. You may have seen it um, about uh, Trump's fitness to serve as president, and it came out. American voters came out uh, 56 to 42 percent. Um, not fit to serve and voters disapprove 57 to 36 percent of the job he's doing as president. Okay, those are kind of, you know, numbers that we've seen. Maybe they're a little bit bigger than what we've seen, but that's what we've been seeing. What what struck me about the poll as I was thinking about this conversation with you is the division, stark division by party, gender and race. Democrats, 94 to 5 94% to 5% unfit, Republicans 84 to 14% fit. Men split 49-49, but women 63 to 35% not fit. White voters divided as fit, you know, 50% say fit to 48%. Black voters 94 to 4 not fit, Hispanic voters 60 to 40 not fit race, gender, party, just stark divisions. Talk to me about how those, how do you come together? How do you find a, a, a dead center when, you know, those three cuts, you know, it's almost this three-dimensional cutting of, of the population sees such stark divisions. Um, and, and really the, the role President Trump is playing, and, and you, regardless, I think, of where you sit on, on supporting him or not, uh, there's, you know, there, there's, it is clear that the country is, is, you know, widely divided. Um, what, what's your view on, on all of that? A- absolutely. You accurately characterize the current state of affairs with regard to President Trump and the way he's viewed. But in my book, I don't, on, I, on purpose, don't talk about President Trump in that way. I talk about the 2016 election. I talk about some interactions I had with him personally, but I, I stay away from 
the greater idea of Trump and what he's doing to the country because that it's a little bit different issue than what I'm talking about, and I didn't want to get bogged down in that. But uh, I think, and I may say something that is interesting and maybe controversial, but I think in a sort of inverse kind of way, paradoxically, President Trump might be doing more to bring the country together than anybody would have expected because he's bringing them together against him. Uh, his views are, are anathema to such a wide swath of America, except for that very thin base that he has, which is growing thinner every day. Uh, I, you know, he's, he, he governs by division, no question about that. He, he has it as his goal and, and his strategy to drive wedges in between the country, and you see examples of that every day and certainly every week. And I just think he's a unique character. So, so you can't use him as the example of what's best for the country moving forward as far as electoral reform or getting more moderates involved in the process. He, he, he historically is going to be somebody that, that you can't compare to anybody else because the negativity that surrounds his presidency is unique to him. So I shied away in the book from using him as an example and using the statistics that you quoted that apply to people's view of him and his fitness for the presidential office, because I, I don't think moving forward um, that's that's going to play a large part. Now, clearly, it is an example of the extreme division in the country, especially his base on the far right. And you see folks who will justify and attempt to validate every opinion he takes, no matter how unjustifiable. And those, the issue is going to be those folks vote, and their vote counts as much as anybody else. You know, one one man, one vote. Every, everybody has the same power when they show up at the ballot box. So, uh, from the point of view of thinking on the extreme. Uh, polarization that occurs. You have some of that on the far left too, but as it relates to President Trump, the, if he's not on the ballot, those folks are still going to vote and they're still going to be politically active and they're still going to make posts on social media and their representatives are still going to show up on TV and espouse their point of view. So from the perspective of what does that mean for the country, that's what I talk about in the book is, is how do you design a system that neutralizes that point of view. We currently have a system that empowers people on the extremes, that gives an advantage to extreme candidates in our primary system and our electoral system. So when President Trump is out of office, we're still going to have to have that national conversation of, of how do we make sure that those people on the extremes are not the people who are deciding the outcome of elections, because when that happens we end up with somebody like President Trump in the White House. And I want to talk about the solutions, because you, you do. You outline, I mean, it's a chapter called Solutions. You, you outline uh, some, some real proposals about uh, the way forward, and, and I, I want to be mindful of time, and, and I do want to ask you about those solutions. I, I also want to ask you just quickly, I mean, your own history, uh, you know, you, you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you, you were, um, in your time in office, um, the dead center, weren't, weren't you? I mean, you had you know some of, some of the highlights, and you've noted them, uh, and, and others have noted them. You know, twenty nine of your legislative initiatives were signed into law. Um, you went five and a half years. You didn't miss a single vote. 
And, and then I, you know, further reading, you know, and how powerful was this? The reason, I guess, why you did miss the vote was because uh, a member of your district was uh, um, uh, getting a, a Medal of Honor from Barack Obama, someone who'd been deceased. And, you know, you, in my mind, rightfully thought that, well, you know, I'm going to go honor this uh, American hero as, a, as opposed to keeping my vote streak alive. I could certainly understand that. Um, you introduced uh, the bipartisan bill that gained the most co-sponsors of any congressional bill in American history. The National Journal calculated your voting record to be the exact midpoint of the House, the dead center, giving you the most centrist voting record in Congress. So you, you walked the walk. There's, there's, there's no doubt. You, you didn't just kind of come to this philosophy, uh, you know, for the purposes of, of writing what we, you know, we all hope will be a best-selling book. Um, what was it like being at the dead center? Um, did you have no friends, or was everyone your friend? That's an interesting question. Definitely not everyone is your friend. That, that's not the answer. Uh, it, again, it, it's the people who show up at town hall meetings, who call your office, and certainly who work on campaigns and show up to vote and give money to candidates. Those are the people, by and large, who are on the extreme. And I talk in the book about the statistical validation of that. That's not just my opinion and experience. That that's The evidence shows that that's the case. But the people that you run into in your everyday life, out to dinner at restaurants or that you see walking in the park or you know just normal folks, they're in the middle. And they're so frustrated with what's going on in the Congress. And they're frustrated with what's happening in Washington. And they tune it out. And by and large, they don't participate in the political process. So they leave that duty to people on the extremes who are in turn choosing our candidates. And what you find is I, on significant legislative issues, for the most part, voted half the time with the Democrats and half the time with Republicans throughout my career. And that makes you really popular with that first group of people that I talked about, the people who are normal everyday folks who don't pay that much attention to politics, they think that's that's the way it should be. And they like that. And they'll show up in the general election and support you. But the people who vote in primaries, in my case, I was a Democrat. The same occurs on the Republican side. When your opponent can point to you and say that guy votes half the time with the Republicans, that doesn't work so well in a Democratic primary, as I ended up finding out. So I'm I, I, I'm proud of the record that I accomplished, but uh, certainly from a, a partisan point of view and, and winning primary elections, strategically, you're disincentivized from working with the other side. You're punished for compromise. And if you are in a district, especially um, these very few remaining swing districts, uh, that doesn't mean that there's a huge group of people in the middle who are deciding the outcome of elections. What that means is, in some cases, you have some areas of the district that are Republican, you have some areas of the district that are Democrat, and as a centrist in that district, you may be presented as a voter with a candidate from the far left and the far right, and that's your choice in, in the general election. You have no other alternative to, to cast your vote for somebody in the middle because that's already been decided in the primary. So that, that's what you find in that environment. You, you do, in Congress, have people that want to work together, that do talk about compromise. You're seeing it in the Senate in, in a more public way than is usually the case. But in the end, the folks who are publicized as being in that group 
find that that's not an advantage when the voters show up in a primary. So let's talk about your solutions. Uh, run down some of them for me, if you would. I mean, you talk about congressional reforms. You talk about renewing civics and, and renewing our, our teaching of civics in schools. And, boy, we could go off of that and have a, a full discussion about, well, you know, how is that going to get done when uh, public education is, you know, at the risk of being dismantled might be strong. But, uh, you know, it's a you know, there's there's certainly real questions around public education, but 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 fine, that'll be a that'll be another conversation we can have. So you know, you talk about renewing the teaching of civics. Um, you talk about campaign finance reform, gerrymandering, which you, you know you were really the victim of uh, you know Pennsylvania's legislature and and what they did. You just kind of referenced it a second ago uh, to to your district. Tell tell me about your solutions. The solutions are offered in the context of outlining the problems in in the first several chapters of the book and when you talk about something like civics i have some really interesting and it's it's always fun to read about these things examples of of polls that have been done of the public in america and how uneducated people are not just in the political process but on the common the the the, the common themes throughout american history that every american should know and and what and they're always funny. Like there, there was a constitution survey and uh, a survey about the American revolution and, and the folks who think they know the most. The first question is, do you think you could pass a question on the basic history of the American revolution? 89% of Americans say, yes, they could. Then you give them the sh- survey and 83% have failed. Things like that. The fact that uh, of a C-SPAN survey, None of over a thousand people surveyed could name all nine Supreme Court justices, which you may say, well, very few people could, but less than half could name even one. Uh, A majority of voters didn't know how long a Senate term was, didn't know how many senators there were in the Senate. So with that context and, and, and these incredibly interesting studies in the way partisans think by showing them political information and watching how their brains react and, and the way they operate in group dynamics when presented with evidence counter to their point of view. So that's what leads up to the solutions. And what you find is I talk about gerrymandering. I talk about campaign finance reform and partisan media and the sorting of the population into like-minded clusters, which makes it very difficult to draw districts in any other way than partisan districts, because like-minded people have gravitated to live near one another. So I I get into all that. So in the end, I find all of those things, even to my surprise over the two years I wrote the book, those are symptoms of the problem. You don't solve the problem by tinkering around the edges of those, although I do have recommendations on how to improve all of those. The answer, yes, civics education, that's the long-term answer, getting people more interested in politics, more knowledgeable about current affairs. I get into how we can do that by incentivizing colleges and university students to uh, have have a more knowledgeable and, and, and interest, in, knowledgeable base of, of knowledge and then more interest in those issues. But really the solution, the gist of the whole thing is you have to get more people to vote and you have to find a way to dilute the power of the extremes in the primary process. So the way that you do that, I have a little bit of a dialogue in the book about 
universal voting and mandatory voting. It will never happen in this country, so I don't spend too much time on it. But when you look at other countries where everybody votes and you you see what the candidates who participate in those systems think, you have to appeal not just to the extreme, but you have to appeal to everybody. So you, you moderate your point of view because you're not just appealing to your base voter as you would in our primary system. So thinking about that, what is a politically realistic way where we could approach that? And the answer is through open primaries, closed primary systems where only the most extreme partisans show up to vote in the primary. That's the number one problem that we have that we have to solve. And that's the biggest issue that if you made one change, it would make the biggest difference in the Congress. So California uh, has looked at this Louisiana, I believe the state of Washington, where you look at more open primaries and you take all the candidates and put them in the same race at the same time and you take the top two out of that. Some have advocated the top four. but the, And you have ranked choice voting, which the state of Maine, the city of Minneapolis and some other places in the country where you rank all the candidates on your ballot and then the calculation is made knocking out the lowest finishers and then redistributing those votes to the higher uh, people who end up winning. Those are ways that you and they're being implemented in this country and the data has showed that this is true. You moderate the population who's showing up to vote. You you disincentivize the extremes and you give candidates, even in California, people who have had a record, a long standing record of liberalism or conservatism on the extreme have had to moderate their views to win elections. And those who haven't have been knocked out of office at both the congressional and the state legislative level. So in the end, that's the most immediate and politically realistic solution is open up primaries so that candidates have to appeal to a much wider base of voter than just the extremes. And what you're going to get out of that are more centrist, more moderate, thoughtful candidates who are going to represent the people that they were elected to serve, not just the people on the far extremes of their parties. Well, it's a it's a terrific set of solutions, and and those are you know very very interesting ideas and in, on voting and changing some of those approaches, and that that we'll continue to to look at. Just to to close out, um, given that those solutions and some of them, as you note, are are very long term, and and some of them can be potentially a bit more immediate term, but the you know approach to voting isn't going to change, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, in every district or every municipality. Uh, you know, in time for the 2018 election or even 2020, putting on your political hat um, right now, is dead center a political theme that you think would work or could work in 2018? I mean, if you were advising someone running for Congress, running for the seat that you ran for, maybe the seat you ran for, you would advise, but ran, running for Congress more generally, would that be your st- political strategic advice? Could Could running in the dead center actually win today? Ideally, you wouldn't want a candidate to choose their position on the issues just because that would be the most advantageous way to win an election. So I I will say that, right? You you don't want someone to to look at the political landscape and say, I'm going to take this position because it's going to help me win the election. You would hope a candidate is really a centrist. That's where their heart is. That's where they are on the issues. And you described what my record was. So I guess that's my question. Do Do you think that that approach, that philosophy can win then? Uh, It's been proven in the current environment, no, it cannot. Then that's the whole point of my 
book because it's not sustainable. I, I saw it in my experience. I learned firsthand the downside of taking that approach. And I explain in the book why it, that's a very negative circumstance for this country. And we are heading in the wrong direction. We're getting bad outcomes. We have a Congress that is incapable of doing anything. It's completely gridlocked. Uh, we have a nation that appears divided because of the rhetoric that's happening in Washington and among the surrogates on the airwaves. And people are very frustrated and they're, and they're tuning it out. So uh, that's the problem. Problem and I and I do offer solutions on, on how you fix it, but the answer to your question is no. It's been proven that's not a successful strategy. People in the center in the current political environment are unable to win and certainly keep congressional and legislative seats that they win because they're knocked out of office for not being as allegiant to their party as the extremists would like them to be. Well, it is a complicated uh, issue. It's probably the, the most important conversation, one of the most important conversations we can have uh, as a society. Um, thank you. You've, you've outlined it and, you know, you, you've done it and, and tried to offer some solutions to get there as well. And, and I know, uh, you know, the, the frustration that, that you have with the, the current results and the current system that, that we all have, um, that comes through. Uh, but so does uh, your view that, uh, you know, th there's a way forward. And, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, I, you know, I, we, we all, you know, everyone certainly hopes that there's a way for uh, uh, folks to come together. And, uh, you know, thank you for taking the time to put that uh, down on paper and uh, for talking with me today. I appreciate it. I'm happy to do it, Chris. Thank you for having me on. That was my conversation with former Congressman Jason Altmaier. His new book is Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do About It. The what we can do about it part is quite a challenge. We're clearly not there yet. My thanks to Congressman Altmaier for his time and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you again soon.